This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. On a snowy day like today, when you think about the State Department of Transportation, you probably wonder, are the roads clear? But that's just one small part of the job that Jim Redeker has in front of him. His department is tasked with carrying out Governor Malloy's big transformative $100 billion transportation plan to fix bridges and roads, improve rail infrastructure, and much more. But where's the money going to come from? And if the money doesn't come, what do we do? You can join the conversation about transportation in our state, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We love Twitter questions and lots of questions on the phones as well for James Redeker. He's the commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Transportation. Good to see you once again, and welcome back to where we live. Thanks so much. It's great to be here this morning. First of all, just very simply, it is a snow day. What happens on a day like this for for your department? You've got to clear off the roads, the highways, some of the secondary roads, I'm sure. I mean, what does a snow day in Connecticut mean for your department? Well, snow day for us uh, started uh, last night at about 11 o'clock. We activate our snow room, um, and uh, everybody then is on on call. Uh, they were brought in uh, about 4 o'clock this morning. Everybody was out and about on the highway system. Uh, it also means um, um, engaging with our public transit providers and making sure that they are ready to go, what their conditions are, um, and with Metro North and Amtrak. So it is a uh, a large coordination effort that uh, happens through our internal operations center. Uh, but we are um, always uh, ahead of a storm. Um, we're watching the snow. We've got monitors all over the state, temperature, conditions, which really helps us time um, to the minute almost when we need to pull people in. So it's the most efficient deployment. We don't bring them in too early. They're not just waiting around. Um, and then uh, they go out as soon as conditions warrant, either to pre-treat or to uh, begin to plow snow. So that's sort of the highway side. Um, we have a special operation, as you know, for the fast track system with dedicated people there and dedicated contractors, making sure that's okay. And all of these conditions are monitored centrally through uh, cameras and communications. So um, it's, a, it's a very fine-tuned machine. Um, we're proud of what we do, and uh, we're proud to share that as well. As you know, we sent crews to uh, Washington and Maryland um, for their storm, Um, and it was uh, an eye-opener for us um, about just how organized we are and the great equipment that we have and that we could offer that to locations that, frankly, didn't have the right equipment, didn't have the organization, and didn't have the resources and people to do what we're able to do. So. Uh, yeah, your, your Connecticut uh, snowplows and, and your uh, your workers actually getting the president to work. Yeah, kind of. We were plowing <laughs> right around the Capitol. It was really tough down there. Um, we had some fun, too. Uh, we uh, we deployed uh, snowblowers, and uh, uh, Florida brought in some dump trucks. So we were paired up with Florida. Nice. Uh, yeah, the guys love it. They actually – we filled up their trucks to take it home to Florida so they could dump it in their driveways and have some fun. Very nice. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Hopefully too much of it didn't melt on the, on the road yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, if you want to call us with questions for Jim Redeker, 860-275-7266. Of course, keeping the snow off the roads is one big part of the job. We're going to get to an awful lot today uh, that's in the governor's transportation plan. Uh, let's just start here. It's about a year now since the governor laid out this $100 billion mm-hmm. transportation plan, but it, it was all really contingent on finding funding for it. And ever since that happened, there's been a series of fiscal problems, uh, continued shortfalls in the budget of this last year, shortfalls into the next year. He just talked about some new adjustments. Mm-hmm. And the governor has repeatedly said that unless we get 
the so-called transportation lockbox, in which we're able to raise money to put into a special transportation fund that cannot be raided or otherwise used by the legislature, then we're not going to really be able to do this $100 billion of of transformative stuff. So, like, where are we now a year on from that big Mm -hmm. announcement? Well, so uh, let's just talk about the fundamental piece of where we are and what we need to do, and that is the lockbox. The history of transportation funding is that the special transportation fund established because of the crisis with the Mayanis Bridge collapse, really created the only new funding that we've ever had, and it was put into the Special Transportation Fund. But over time, those funds were transferred out um, over years and years and years so that the purchasing power of that fund um, really never was able to achieve even what it was intended to do, and that alone was only a bridge program. So it wasn't enough money for the rest of the system. We saw deterioration, for example, of the Metro North system, uh, the old cars that had to be replaced that were way overaged. Those are examples of not enough funding in the system, and we're still suffering from that. Pavement conditions, 44th in in the country, Um, half of our bridges beyond their their useful life, railroad bridges in at least that age, or if not worse. Um, And so we're sitting on uh, really a powder keg of potential problems because funding has not been secure, predictable, or sufficient. So what we've said is let's put all the money that's now in place, that's the gas tax funds and motor vehicle and other fees, plus the new sales tax that was put in by the legislature last year and permanently lock it in with a constitutional amendment so that funds that have been identified so far will forever stay in the fund and cannot be taken out. Um, And it also says that as new funds are identified and they'd have to be identified, they too would stay in that fund and not be taken out. And, And let's just talk a little bit about besides the need side, Um, The fund as it's set up and the idea that's been set up is that um, by keeping money in the fund, there are times when there'll be a surplus, which would do two things. One, uh, it will allow us to use cash instead of borrowing, bringing down the cost of the programs and making it easier and faster to do projects. And two, it would build reserves for the big projects that have to be done. And we are facing some massive single projects like two viaducts. So uh, just put that in perspective, if we don't know that we have guaranteed predictable funding that we can count on, it would be next to impossible to do those projects. So the lockbox is number one for permanency, predictability, and reliability for us to plan and deliver transportation projects. So, so, but to talk about how that gets done, that's not just the governor and the legislature deciding we want to create this lockbox. That is moving forward in an election year mm-hmm. to decide that we will uh, have a referendum on a right. lockbox right. Uh, this November. Sure. So at the very earliest that this could get done, if indeed we, we move down this road during this, this tough financial times, it's not until November we start building this fund. I mean, you're saying things about bridges being beyond their useful life mm-hmm. and you know, right. sort of a powder keg of problems right, coming right, down. Right. I guess one big question is, should the people of Connecticut be worried that the bridges and roads that we need to fix, and I'm not talking about expansion or widening highways or doing anything that we'll talk about later on in the program, mm-hmm. but like that if we're going to cite the Mianus River Bridge right. as a reason why special transportation funding got started in the first place, are we worried that another bridge collapse – 
another major roadway failure is going to happen sometime in the next couple years as we're trying to wait for the funding to fix the thing? No, uh, for two reasons. Um, first, uh, we, everything that we have done and all the plans that we've made um, are predicated on um, absolute engineering principles and asset management predictions of the condition of our system. We measure bridges every year. We measure our roads. We measure the rail system. And we know, therefore, how to program, when to program um, the investments that we need to make and stay ahead of um, failure conditions. So we don't have a system that is in a failure mode. We have a system that would if insufficient funds are not found. Um, so this is the first time this plan the governor put forward is the first time in Connecticut's history that we've done a forward-looking plan, not a catch-up and only deal with problem plan, but it's one that would put us in a position to never, ever be where we are today and never have a disaster. The funds we have for the next several years are sufficient um, thanks to um, the efforts that the legislature did after the governor proposed the sales tax. So the dedication statutorily of the additional sales tax uh, really generated an additional $2.8 billion of capital on top of our current program. So in the next five years, with federal funds, we will deliver a $10 billion program. But there's no assurance that the money raised through the sales tax will actually definatively go toward these transportation plans because we have no way of knowing right. that it won't be taken for something else that's in the exactly general That's exactly right, fund. and that's the, that is the point, that um, today it's a statutory dedication. The legislature said it's going to transportation. But as we do that, um, I think what we've heard and heard resoundingly from business, we'll talk about that first, business has said loud and clear that transportation is the number one issue to make them want to be here, to make them uh, operate effectively and efficiently, to do that at lower costs and to want to be in Connecticut. And so we want to do that for our economy, um, but we want to make sure that the money stays there so that we don't wind up with a problem downstream. So we're comfortable that we um, uh, are in a good spot, but we've heard from people that they want to see this money guaranteed. Um, any poll you, you take and any organization you talk to says, this just plain makes sense. If I'm going to put my money up, I want to see what it does, and I want to know it's going to go for what, I, uh, want, for what I really voted for. So I think the vote is the right thing. Uh, we're talking with James Redeker. He's commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Transportation. We're going to get to some of your phone calls in a moment at 860-275-7266. People joining us on Twitter and Facebook as well, at Where We Live. We'll get to some of those comments. So w one thing, obviously the politics of whether or not we're going to get a lockbox is very important. Whether or not we're going to be able to raise the funding in whatever way we possibly can is very important, given the fact that we seem to be continually running into these fiscal mm -hmm. crises. I will ask on the revenue side quickly, um, uh, recent um, uh, proposals have come down from uh, groups looking at the ways that we might fund some of the transportation mm -hmm. plans. And it once again gets us back to the fact that an awful lot of regions of this country and of this world find ways to collect uh, tolls on roads sure. uh, through some sort of passive toll collection process. This is not the old-fashioned toll booths that further right. jam up highways or cause That's accidents true. or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Connecticut is like on an island here. All of our neighbors toll, mm -hmm. and you don't even feel it. You go through a fast lane in Massachusetts. There's overhead um, toll collection in places like New York. They send you a, a thing in the mail and said you go went across the Henry Hudson Bridge, pay me $13 now. Why on earth 
can't Connecticut figure out a way to c- capture some of these dollars, not only to pay for the things that we need to do, I- I- as you've outlined, but also to capture these dollars because so many people have to drive through our state to get from Boston to New York, New York to Boston to Vermont and every place else. I mean, why are we the only ones not doing this? Well, so there's a history of why we're not, and that's because of the disaster that occurred at a toll booth and, and they were eliminated. Um, and th- that was replaced with the gas tax and an increase in the gas tax. Unfortunately, that gas tax was reduced and reduced to such a degree that we are facing some of these investment failures over the last 40 years. I mean, as, uh, if we had sustained all the money that we used to get from tolls or all the money that we once had from gas tax, we frankly would not be seeing the conditions we face today. So there is a call for us to invest more to recover from really 40 years of disinvestment, underinvestment, and neglect in the transportation system. So how do we pay for it? Uh, The finance panel that the governor put together did come forward with a series of recommendations um, and options. And I I, I still view them as options and alternatives for us to consider about what's the most productive, um, when do we need it, um, and and which really technique works best uh, for different types of programs. Um, Tolls are one of those solutions that they recommended. Um, But I think we need to be clear that tolls just don't happen overnight. And some of the forecasts that we're making and revenue needs we're showing for our rail system, our bus system, our highway system, um, come long before we could actually institute tolls. So a toll program could take anywhere between five and eight years to do the planning, the environmental impact statements, the the alternatives to have the public meetings, design and implement, and then begin to collect. Well, uh, the dedication of the sales tax and the gas tax combined will not be enough to sustain our current operations and capital program beyond the next uh, five years. Uh, So we have to start thinking at that point because the fund begins not to have enough money. It there's enough money in it to continue, but sooner or later it goes negative. But, but, but if, there's, if there's enough money for it to continue up to a point at which you, you start to do right. real studies about uh-huh. tolls and that sort of thing and you cross over <laughs> to really being that. Here's the other part about tolls and especially the types of tolling that it happens in all sorts of countries. I was just in the beautiful island of Puerto Rico. This is a, this is a, a country slash commonwealth uh-huh. that is in terrible financial straits. But on their highways, they're, they're pretty nice highways. And you know what? There's these big overhead uh, passive toll collectors that just send me a bill afterward. Puerto Rico can figure it out, and this is an island completely in crisis. So (laughs) so, here's here's, my my point with this, Commissioner, is that it's not just about collecting the revenue. It's about the possibility of trying to keep people off the roads that are so congested. One of the things Mm -hmm. that the governor says over and over again is we're losing man hours, we're losing dollars because people are sitting in traffic. Every single type of congestion model that's worked around the world has incentivized people to not take their single vehicles on those roads because it costs a little bit of something. So you raise a little bit of revenue and you get people off those crowded highways. So, yeah, the whole concept of congestion pricing and full electronic tolling uh, is what we've been studying. So actually, we're pretty well, pretty far along in that. and, And one of the only states in the country that got federal pilot grant money to look into that. And if we're going to do tolls, um, um, frankly, what it says is uh, when we do all the forecasts, the combination of adding lanes and tolling all the lanes and doing um, congestion pricing um, does a few things. One, it manages congestion. The extra capacity you build lasts you longer because you're getting more out of that system than you do today. 
Um, and frankly, those revenues can be spent in that corridor on not just the highway system, but also on the transit system, right? So that is a concept that is still in a study phase. Um, we haven't taken it to a specific where do toll gantries go and how much do you charge. That's what has to still be studied um, to get us there. Um, but I do think that the concept of if we do tolls, use it with congestion pricing um, is the only way to do them because of the value that it gains in maximizing the efficiency of the system for all the users. Uh, you, what is also yeah, true is that yeah. just tolling one lane, um, an ex one express lane, um, on the existing system, frankly, doesn't solve any congestion. It doesn't fix the problem and costs more than you get back. So we've actually looked at lots of alternatives. So a hot lane on I-95 costs more to build and administer than we're going to net gain. So, however, if you really want to deal with congestion, which is, again, fundamental to our businesses and fundamental to people every day spending, you know, a week's worth of time in their car doing nothing mm -hmm. um, every year, um, then we have to look at building new capacity while we build in congestion pricing and while we have a very effective multimodal strategy to completely look at getting people out of the cars to the degree possible, using the highways to their best and, and most efficient utilization, um, and in the end, providing a full system of alternatives for people in Connecticut. When we come back from a break, we'll be talking about building some of that new capacity, talk more about roads and bridges uh, highways in Connecticut, and also, of course, trains. If you have questions for James Redeker, the Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Transportation, 860-275-7266. We'll be right back where we live. Just can't wait to get on the road again. Life I love is making music with my friends. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're sitting down with James Redeker. He's the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Transportation. In a moment, we'll be getting to some of your phone calls at 860-275-7266. If you've got questions about rails and bicycles and highways, you can give us a call. He'll have some answers for you. I, I want to get to something, though, you, you just said before our break. We were talking about uh, congestion on the highways. We're talking about congestion pricing and tolling. Um, Jeff tweets at us, why not make tolling tax deductible for Connecticut residents? Well, there's an idea. That, uh -huh. that, that might actually get some people uh, more supportive of it. But you talked about building capacity, and this is something that's been uh, on our minds a lot, sure. something I've asked you and asked the governor about in the past. Uh, Conperg uh, has been uh, talking quite a bit recently. This is a, a public interest research group about part of the governor's plan being widening the highways, mm -hmm. like widening I-95. Yeah, yeah. It's a $100 billion plan, so there's a lot in it. Here's what their point is. They say any money spent on widening highways mm -hmm. is a bad idea because every single study, and I've read a lot of these studies, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you've read a lot of these studies, shows that when you increase the size of a highway, you increase the capacity, and you force more people onto the road. It's the, it's the opposite of congestion pricing. It's an incentive for people to get in their cars and get on a wider highway so more people end up on the roads. The congestion doesn't actually get better. So the, the big question about it is, yeah, we've got to spend money on fixing the highways and making mm -hmm. sure there's not potholes and making sure the bridges are safe. But shouldn't we be thinking about ways to actually use the $11 billion or whatever is in this $100 billion pot to widen the roadway to go into mass transit, to go into other things, to incentivize people to not get on the highway? That's the only way to solve congestion. Yeah, so, you know, I've heard those comments and I've read those comments, um, and I frankly disagree with a, the singular view that it takes. 
And I think you need to do a thorough reading of the Let's Go CT plan to understand, first, it is about economic growth, uh, which we're not having, and it's very key that transportation is the solution, and it's been identified by all. So, And what is that? It's about congestion. So if it's the number one problem for economic growth not fixing, it seems to be backwards to me. Second, it is a multimodal plan. Um, and fundamentally, take a look at what the first five years, the ramp up to the $100 billion plan, the part that's already been funded, um, the $2.8 billion, 70% of that is for rail improvements which will come first, which demonstrates our commitment to public transportation. So does investment in extending Fast Track East and a bus rapid transit system in southwest Connecticut um, and extending and expanding our bus system by 25 percent. Third, this plan is focused on a future where people don't necessarily want to even have a car. Um, so we're looking at transit-oriented development and building places this is a collective vision. It's not just transportation. It is also about where does housing go? Where do we put business and locating um, all the development around a transit stop so that people don't need a car if they don't want to have it? So we don't want people to drive that, that don't need to if we can provide them choices. And today we do not. On the other hand, this is a state that is congested now. And it is the impediment to our future economic growth. Not solving it leaves on the table the economic benefits that we've calculated. But, but, For I, every one yeah. of these widening projects, yeah. the benefits are at least three times the cost of the project economically. At the same time, if we don't fix them, the cost of not doing it is greater. $5 billion a year is greater four times greater than what we're actually spending today on fixing. And that's why people are on congested roads with potholes, you know, with systems like Charter Oak Bridge but, but, but that I think we're causes having, that yeah, congestion. But, but I think we're having two, two separate conversations because I, there is clearly more money in your plan for all this other stuff, for rail improvements, and that's the stuff we want to get to and is really the important – that's the future of Connecticut and everybody Absolutely. else's transportation system. But the argument is it's not that widening the highways is something you need to do along with everything else because it will help. It's that that actually hurts. It's that that doesn't work. No, I, just, it, I totally it, disagree. It causes more congestion. No, we've do, frankly, we've actually done all the modeling of this that shows what adding a lane using congestion pricing does. For automobiles. With, with using congestion yeah, pricing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. so that's very key. I want to make sure that that's understood. If we're talking about widening the highways, we got to do it with congestion pricing. Absolutely. Well, that's what, we're, that's what we're talking about. That's what's in the plan. So it is a plan that is focused on reducing congestion in as any possible ways we can, principally looking first at building new mass transportation options, which if you look at the state, many people do not have. I mean, fundamental to our vision is uh, the biggest investment on the Northeast Corridor, on the New Haven line that's ever been put forward. And it's talking about building a two-plus-two system, two tracks for frequent service, two tracks for high-speed service, taking what today is 20-minute frequency in the peaks between stations and perhaps getting it as fast as, as frequent as, every four minutes. That would be unbelievably transformative. At the same time, using the inner tracks for high-speed service that could reduce travel times by 15 minutes, you know, from end to end and really make this thing uh, a system and an attractive one for long-distance trips and regional trips. That is principle to where we're headed in terms of our vision. So to say that, you know, we shouldn't widen the highway, I think is really short-sighted because I guess go back to one of your points. This is a through state. 
Um, and so there are people that are coming through all the time. And we are a state that depends and will always have to depend on trucks to move goods. They all use our highways and they all sit in congestion, rising, raising the cost of business and making us not attractive. So I think we need a comprehensive solution. Um, and not only are people looking for congestion relief on the highways, um, what we're hearing from businesses, particularly high-tech businesses trying to at attract young people is our mass transit investments, our transit-oriented development investments are exactly what they're looking for. Um, so I think you have to read the whole plan and understand that we actually do have a view for the future and trying to attract the people to stay in Connecticut or to choose Connecticut because of the quality of life. I, and I trust me, I have read the whole plan. And one thing, one thing I'll say is that early on in the in the mm -hmm. literature, uh, in one of the anecdotes, it actually cites the Department of Transportation commissioner from like 1921, <laughs> saying it's important to widen the highways. Well, that's 1921, and that's how we got where we are today. Well, we got no. We, actually, we what he said, <laughs> what actually what he said was we don't, we we have we never had a plan. Um, we need more money to build transportation. Um, so in the end, he said, and, you know, the legislature hasn't gotten this, so we need to figure out how to pay for it. So ultimately, he went to the people. They decided to raise taxes, and what did they do? They took it out of the fund, and so that's why we had congestion because the money that was put in, in 1921, we've been doing this since DOT was started with the oldest Department of Transportation in the country. We celebrated 120 years last year, yeah. and we've never had a vision, and we've always had a fund that we took money out of. It's time to change that. <laughs> I think we can all agree with that. Uh, James Redeker is Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Transportation. We're going to get to some of your calls in just a moment. Just very quickly, I have to ask one, one last question on this. One of the other issues about the widening of I-95, you're talking about some of the most expensive hard to get at land mm -hmm. in all of America or maybe the world. Sure, sure. It's not like it's just widening a highway through some cow path yeah, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so that's a big problem. And that's why uh -huh. it costs so damn much, too, yeah. I guess, is, is part of the part uh, of the issue. A, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, if you travel to Colorado and they built a new express lane, uh, an express highway, you know, it just they could just build it. Right. It's just mm -hmm. a ring road and there was plenty of property. If you go to Utah and you want to build a new road, you can do that. It's much simpler. We have an old system, a very tight congested system, a very expensive real estate system, and it actually travels along the coast where there's a lot of water. So this is going to be a very, very complex project. But as we've looked at the widening of 95 from New Haven to the Greenwich border, just as a physical matter, about 80 percent of the entire length of that, uh, we can accomplish an additional lane on property we already own. It's in the DOT right away. I'm not saying that the 20 percent that's left is simple or easy or, frankly, you know, we haven't even started the process to, you know, look at the environmental impacts. But it means that if 80 percent of it's within our control already, I do think that that means that this vision is achievable but certainly difficult. Let's go to some phone calls. Anthony's in Hartford. Hi, Anthony. Hello. Hi, Anthony. So uh, my question has to do with the I-84 viaduct replacement mm -hmm. um, that's being planned and, and designed right now. Sure. It looks like it could shut the highway down for two to three years. Not true. Um, uh, not true. I just they could they could make it function very inefficiently for two to three years. Um, no, no. Actually, I want to clarify that. And, and I've heard people say that uh, we're planning to shut the viaduct down for two to three years. And uh, that is not true. And in fact, the reason we're continuing to evaluate alternatives is to get to the place where we understand the best option to build for the best price 
with the best constructability alternatives. Um, at, at this point, we have absolutely no uh, uh, no uh, plan that would cost cause us to shut that highway down. So I think I want to just dispel that fear for people okay. for now so, and understand so that our goal and what we've demonstrated in many ways so far is to build projects in new and innovative ways that frankly minimize the time to deliver a project. And I'm not saying the viaduct is going to be done like we did the bridge in Southington, but replacing the you know all of 84, an entire three-lane structure in both directions in Southington on one weekend was pretty darn phenomenal with, pr frankly, no impact really on, uh, on congestion. So, uh, Anthony, any other thoughts about this? I, I do have, I did, and I, I can only say that the, the project is going to be long and, and complicated. That's for During sure. During that project where ID4 is not functioning as well as we would like, um, how are, what's the overall strategy with bus transit sure. and rail development? Yeah. Um, and how can that, you know, change the game at the same time? Yeah. Uh, and, and Anthony, thank you, thank you very much for that. And, and obviously, I, I want you to get to what Anthony's saying. I, yeah. One thing I, I will say is there have been there have been studies of different ways to do this. If you have a sure. big replacement project, uh -huh. you know, one way to do it is to say, okay, we're going to try to do this as well as we possibly can, keep the roadway running, and be in a state of long-term sure. construction. Sure. Another way to do it is to say we are not going to drive on this road for two years. Yeah. But when we're done the road's done in two years as opposed yeah. to 10 years or 15 years. So that, that's one piece of what Hand that he's asking yeah, about. Sure, I just sure, want, sure, want sure. you to clarify if you would. Yeah, I mean, look, look, uh, I think looking at uh, the range of options and looking at new ways of construction and bringing in the best and brightest people from around the world to give us advice is exactly what we're doing before we make a decision on how we're going to do the project. And it is, as I said, I think traditional ways that the DOT did projects where two things, one, um, it was a very predictable, you design them, you bid them, you build them, and you, you, you have to phase the project based on the fact that you don't have enough money. And that's part of the plan. Mm -hmm. Don't ever do that again is what the plan says. So we're trying to be very innovative um, with new techniques. And we're saying we're also going to want to have a, a strong funding strategy so that we can accelerate a project and not have the kind of impacts that you'd otherwise expect. Uh, Kelly is calling from West Hartford. Hello, Kelly. You're on with DOT Commissioner Jim Redeker. Hi there. Hi, Thank you for taking my call. Yeah. So what's missing from this morning's discussion is active transportation. Yeah, we didn't get uh, to I that yet. I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about it now. Right. So it is. Well, well, yeah, you go, like go, go ahead, Kelly. Go, yeah, just quickly. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. I'd like to introduce the idea that we need a paradigm shift where active transportation becomes a prominent part of our transportation plan. Uh, we've already done we that, Kelly. About um, highways. No, I, I think you have to, again, uh, just to when clarify. She says active transportation, we're talking about bicycling, walking, bicycling, running. Walking, um, safe streets, connections to transit, giving more options for people. Um, frankly, they could be, uh, you know, uh, uh, cars, shared rides. There could be a lot of things to get people to use transit and also to build our developments to build our, our, our future developments around transit so you don't need to get there by car or use, uh, you know, motorized vehicles. Um, again, if you take a look at the plan and furthermore, you take a look at the ramp up, the most significant investment in the history of the, of the Department of Transportation is in the first five years, $100 million for bicycle and pedestrian improvements. The department hasn't spent that in 120 years. We're doing it in five. 
Um, the rest of the plan calls for an extraordinary completion of the East Coast Greenway from border to border, completion of all the major trails, and um, a lot of money spent with communities on connecting their downtowns in better ways, safer ways. Um, so it is fundamental, and I would say um, this is, uh, since I've been commissioner, um, when I first walked in the door, the department had a philosophy that was anti-bicycle and anti-pedestrian. This is a paradigm shift. It already exists, and we are champions of all these activities, to, demonstrating to, with money. To, to, to anticipate Kelly's follow-up question, um, of the funding for the first five-year plan, if there's $100 million mm-hmm. for bicycles and right. pedestrians, uh, what's the total amount in, in the plan for you know, of five, I, of five I, I don't know years. the number to that, but it is extraordinary. Um, um, it represents, I think, in the plan itself, um, probably about 5% of that plan. Okay. It's a big number. Okay, so, so it's about 5% of the point. So it's a, it's a big, I will say, it's a big number in your world of yeah. building roads and bridges, you know, probably to Kelly and a lot of people who want more investment in that. Well, it's, Maybe geome- it's geometric yeah. because building these active transportation systems is very, very cost effective. Mm-hmm. It could be as much as striping a roadway and changing design standards, which we have done. Um, so providing that opportunity um, on existing systems um, si- signaling them, signing them. Sometimes that could be done with paint, right? Um, sometimes you need to build, you know, an actual trail system. But compared to building uh, a Hartford viaduct or a Waterbury Mixmaster, um, this we can accomplish an immense amount and transform Connecticut. Um, and frankly, we're the first state in New England to adopt a complete streets policy. We are well ahead of all of our neighbors in this area, and I'm very pleased that, about the paradigm shift that we've already put in place. Oh, we've got a couple more questions here coming in. Our, our friend Frank Donovan from Meriden is calling. Hello, Mr. Donovan. How are you? Good morning, John, and uh, you've got a very able commissioner there and a very... Hey, oh, you're so kind. Thank you. Time bomb. Uh, I'd like to talk to you, Commissioner, about trucks on I-95 with the opening of the new Panama Canal, sure. Max Canal. A lot of the cargoes mm-hmm. are coming in from the Far East into the port of Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. Long Beach, and go by rail across the country are now going to come up the east coast of, of the United States and on different parts of I-95. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the widening of I-95 would be very, very difficult. Why cannot we, Connecticut, consider doing what they do in, in Switzerland with the European Union trucks, put those trucks, drivers and all, onto rail and uh, get and let, let them get off if they need to in New Haven or Bridgeport, but in any event, get most of those trucks off of I-95. Uh, and and if you, uh, you're going to have to force them, and I know the trucking, trucking the Motor Transport mm-hmm. Association is a very, very powerful lobby. Uh, uh, Frank, well, <laughs> thank you for your question. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and we are terrific partners with the Motor Truck Association. Um, um, in fact, I was going to meet with them today, except that the snow <laughs> canceled out. Our meeting will probably be together next week. Um, I think you have a valid point um, in two dimensions, I think. One is um, what's going to happen um, via shipping and the Panama Canal will be uh, completely a new uh, future for everybody. Um, to that degree, we have, uh, as you know, we've adopted uh, a new um, uh, strategic plan for our ports. Connecticut has three deep water ports that are amazing assets that are completely underutilized. Um, seeing that, we put together a plan uh, with our partners at uh, the Department of Economic and Community Development, which led to um, the creation of uh, a new port authority for Connecticut, which will be up and running um, July 1st. We're having our first meeting at the end of February to kick off a new port authority um, because it, it is probably the key 
um, to uh, answering some of your, your issues. We have, um, at least in two of the ports, we also have the connection to rail systems. New London is the connection to the uh, a 286-pound double-stack freight line, um, which has an immense opportunity to take trucks off the road. However, um, to your point about um, freight on I-95, you know, the rail system is not configured um, to actually move trucks efficiently, um, particularly since a bridge um, uh, in New York fell down and hasn't been rebuilt. We really don't have um, an effective routing for freight um, up and down I-95. It is a recommendation that we're making um, as part of our reaction to the uh, NEC future project that's about high-speed rail is that we really still need a freight plan um, to address just this. Um, it's uh, wonderful and fabulous that we're putting together plans for what high-speed rail could do for passengers, um, but our economy needs a similar plan for freight. And the USDOT has mandated a federal freight plan. Um, but frankly, the Northeast Corridor needs one specifically to address your question. So I appreciate um, your thoughts, and I think we're, uh, we're really in tune with each other on the need for such a plan and the opportunity um, not to depend fully on trucks and freight. We've got to take a break into like a minute and a half, but I, I, I will just ask you about that, that NEC plan, the Northeast Corridor. There have been mm -hmm. a number of different proposals out there, sure. different ways in which high-speed rail could connect. Uh, we're talking about everything from tunneling underneath Long Island Sound sure. to going through Hartford and Waterbury to going down along the shoreline, different ways in which Connecticut would be involved in that. As you look at the plans that are in front of you, yeah. wh what do you see and what do you hope comes of all this? Because I know we're a player in all this, but in, in a certain way, we're only going to be part of the overall plan. Yeah, we are a player. Uh, actually, um, an advantaged player. Um, I uh, have the fortune of being the chairman of the Northeast Corridor Commission, so I've been on this from the beginning. And what uh, folks may not know is that um, I was the co-author with New Jersey um, of the actual grant request to do the study of high-speed rail. Um, but let me tell you what I think the, the outcome of that should be. Um, the plan has a, a, an immense number of options and alternatives. What's embedded in it is a massive investment to bring us to state of good repair, make the system work the way it should, but also invest in maximizing the capacity of the existing um, Northeast Corridor. Um, that, I think, is our number one need because we have a list of projects, including the governor's uh, massive plan for the New Haven line, as well as the improvements on the Hartford line and improvements on Shoreline East and extension to Rhode Island are all in the governor's plan. What we need is the federal government to do the authorizing environmental impact statement for all of those projects so that we can move ahead. The environmental impact approval for the Northeast Corridor was last done in 1978. It has no more juice in it. There's no projects that can be authorized, and we need those, and we need them now. But we also still need to keep alive a vision. I mean, we are talking about 50 years, 100 years from now, and if we don't think broadly and boldly, um, uh, I think we lose out on the, uh, the economic future of the New England area. Well, and we're talking about 50 or 100 years from now, I mean, maybe even five years from now. I mean, Jackie <laughs> tweets, what are we doing about connected cars, real-time ah. traffic, and self-driving tech? I mean, look, Excellent. I think one of, one of the issues with this plan, and I, my colleague uh, uh, Colin McEnroe has written about this a little bit, is anytime you have a big plan that is a little bit of everything, there is a worry that we're not saying this is what we're going to be. We're going to look very seriously at this one thing. And <laughs> 
a 50-year plan for high-speed rail kind of gets us around the idea that, well, maybe that isn't even the thing we're going to be doing. Maybe we're all going to be in self-driving cars going to exactly the destination we want with no accidents and everyone's going to be happy. Oh, I think that's exactly my point about NEC Future. We should split, for now, um, our objectives into the shorter-term amazing benefits we could get out of investments to maximize what we know. Um, and some of that may be taking freight off and some of that may just be providing additional investments. But I think that will capture and propel Connecticut by doing that now and doing it early um, for the next 20 years or 25 years. And I'm saying beyond that, we should hold because a lot of people said, you know, after 25 years, it's kind of hard to be a prognosticator and be right. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, the NEC Future Project really uh, kind of let us down in terms of um, – the quality, the you know, of the analysis to be convincing that we should be actually, you know, tunneling or building in pristine areas through and around all of it, New England. I read that and it looks like nothing. I just, it's like, what well, the hell? It's like, I don't. What, what do we do with this? Really? Right. So, right. Right. What so, do we do with uh, this? So let's hold it and let's yeah. go back and study it again after we get what we need right now. So back to the connected cars yeah. and people are, you know, they're not going to own cars or they will, but they're going to drive themselves. Um, you know, right now. Um, we are. Um, I'm participating in, nationally in uh, you know the activities that are monitoring that. It's pretty exciting. Um, uh, it's not particularly clear still. So again, 25 years from now, maybe, um, but we're not clear what the short term is going to bring. So I think we're in a let's really watch the industry. This is not going to be a government-led initiative. This is going to be you know the Googles of the world uh, propelling us into some new future. Um, but we should be watching. Um, but preparing so that, but, for but, example, yeah. um, uh, as we think about uh, highway construction, we want to make sure that there's the capacity for that to have the systems that are necessary to support autonomous vehicles because there's technology you need within the roadway system. Um, so that's how we're looking at it. That doesn't mean we have designs for it. The industry hasn't adopted this, um, but we're pretty excited about it. Um, again, maybe what it does um, is give us, after the next 20 years where we can build some new capacity, another option to yet get more out of the existing network. Uh, Jim Redeker is commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Transportation. We've got to take one last break. When we come back, some more of your questions will go as sort of a lightning round through a lot of things that we still have to talk to him about. If you've got questions, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday's show, the 2016 presidential debates have been loaded with rhetoric about a so-called ISIS caliphate. But what exactly is a caliphate? And what does it mean to say ISIS has one? Is that actually a dangerous statement to make? We'll be talking about that coming up on Monday's Where We Live. Hope you can join us. James Redeker is here. He's commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Transportation. Got a lot more to get to in the last couple minutes with him. Mark's in Haddam. Hi, Mark. Go ahead. How are you? Thank you for taking my call. Yep. Hey, just a quick question. As we know, everybody complains about you know, how much Connecticut costs to live in and all that. Um, is there any way these plans, you know, that are in the works, is there any way for a citizen to get to review these things? Oh, absolutely. Today? Thanks for the question. Um, you know, the, the Let's Go CT plan that the governor put out um, um, actually uh, followed about a one-and-a-half-year effort that we called Transform CT, 
where there are um, approximately, oh, there's more than 50,000 people that are regulars on our website um, giving us input and feedback and commenting. So if you go to Let's Go CT, there's actually a link there. If you go to uh, Transform CT, you can also participate that way. Um, and, you know, you can always email me at any time. But the entire plan is online. So you can comment at any time through regular email or on our website. And uh, we appreciate any comments you have. Mark, thank you very much. Pat is in New Haven. Hi, Pat. Good morning. I wonder, Commissioner, if you know if there is in the plan for the Northeast any thought of fixing the disconnect that exists right now in Boston between the two Amtrak stations requiring that, as I understand it, you get out of the train, take a cab over to the other one in order to get from Connecticut to Maine. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is a, a, a long-term, this is an idea that's been around for a long time. Um, frankly, the plan itself um, has lots of options in it, but principally focused on uh, significant expansion in the South, uh, the, the South Station, um, you know, major terminal today. Um, concentrating there makes the most sense in terms of where you store equipment, how you manage the operation. But it, too, today um, has severe limits on any future growth and part of the plan, no matter what we do, um, is in Massachusetts, and I know they're focused. Uh, their principal need um, over the long haul is going to be to expand capacity at the terminal at South Station, and that's uh, fundamental. Well, what do you think about the plan that uh, Governor Cuomo in New York is talking about, about changing things around around Penn Station and trying to connect Metro sure. North up to Penn Station? That sort of gets on the New York end of what Pat's talking about up in Boston. Um, yeah, exa- exactly. And so that's also fundamental to uh, to the plan that the governor put forward and the NEC future plan. Penn Station, New York, um, is the pinch point today. Uh, the New Jersey side and a need for another tunnel and access from Connecticut no, uh, no, from the north end are all critical to all of us. We're working together about that. Um, it is the, sort of the next phase of planning to decide exactly how we build the capacity from Connecticut into Grand Central and more capacity, particularly into Penn Station, to get us to that part of the market uh, in New York. So, j- j- And j- just to be clear for our listeners, I believe that that tunnel that you're talking about, that's the pinch point, yeah. would actually have been built, if not for the next president of the United States, Chris Christie, in, in New Jersey. <laughs> I mean, are we are we anywhere with our neighbors in New Jersey trying to get some of these pinch points uh, opened up? Actually, uh, so I ju- you sh- uh, just for some of the listeners, um, I was actually running um, uh, the the full funding grant agreement process and, and, and justification for that pro- program before I left New Jersey. So um, I'm happy that it's back on track. <laughs> so to speak. Um, New Jersey Transit has taken the mantle uh, and the charge to actually perform the environmental impact statement so that it moves ahead. It is so critical to the Northeast Corridor and to Connecticut. So um, we work very well with our partners up and down the Northeast Corridor through the commission and and one-on-one. And so I'm happy that it's back and and hopefully getting some capacity organized. I I have to ask a question for somebody who we can't get to on the the phone. What's planned for the Merritt Parkway? Uh, Frank thinks it could take a lot of vehicles off I-95. What's happening with the Merritt right now? Yeah, so the Merritt is uh, a historic uh, parkway, and we are uh, our plans call um, for preserving the very uh, historic nature and parkway-like uh, uh, performance of it. Though we continue to invest in safety upgrades and improvements um, uh, to make it as safe as possible, but within. Um, the speed limits and capacity and design as a historic parkway. And we have a great relationship with the Conservancy as we move forward on those plans and uh, and hope to make the improvements but really preserve a gem in Connecticut. And, and, and it is a gem, and people love driving on the Merritt, but people don't like like being stuck in, in traffic on the Merritt. I mean, it, to apply— That's why we need to widen 95 <laughs> with congestion pricing <laughs> and build out the New Haven line to provide alternatives in that corridor. Well, so and, and, I, and I understand this is part of the plan. So in the last minute or so we have, let, let's just circle back to this and make sure that I, I 
fully understand that that when when we talk about widening the highway in I-95, it's something that it's only going to happen in conjunction with congestion pricing on that road. Is that what I hear you saying? That's what our plans call for, and it's only going to happen if in the meantime we invest in maintaining the roads and bridges or we'll never get there. Um, you know, I'm just going to start with a with a premise we probably should have started with anyway, and that is two-thirds of $100 billion is fixing what we already own because if we don't, it falls down and fails. So um, it sounds like a big number. It is probably twice or a little bit more than twice what we spend today um, over time on an annual annualized basis. At some point, we actually improve the system and maintain it with asset management principles so you don't need to spend so much. Um, but we're in a catch-up mode. We've got to do it, and some of them are massive. So we finished the Q Bridge um, under budget and ahead of schedule. Um, we now have to do the two viaducts. Um, the two viaducts represent, you know, really 12 percent of the entire $100 billion of it, two projects. It, so it, these are yeah. massive things, If we and we cannot, we cannot hide Closer, you know, close our eyes and not invest in that. In just 30 seconds, are you talking with the new mayor of Hartford, Luke Bronin, who's sat right in that chair and said, look, I really want to engage with the governor and, and the commissioner because we want developable land here. We want to be yeah. able to do something with this land if you build this, yeah, uh, this uh, new roadway. Well, uh, Luke and I um, work together in the governor's office. Uh, Luke and I have met several times since he's been the, before mayor. And since he's been mayor, we've got another meeting scheduled. Transportation is critical to both of us. We need to work together on it. And one of the criteria that we are looking at as we choose among the build alternatives is what does it do for Hartford? What does it restore in terms of community and how much opportunity is there to reinvest in open land because of the way we d- implement the project? And I think, frankly, there are significant opportunities to open up new land and, and, and rebuild Hartford. Uh, James Redeker is commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Transportation. Always good to see you, sir. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. It's always a pleasure. Uh, our program is produced by Tucker Ives and Lydia Brown. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandon's our digital editor. Katie Tolarski is the executive producer of Where We Live. Thanks to Ryan Karen King, who's taking videos of today's program, which we'll find online at wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Have a great weekend. 